0: Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Apple Yard Lees, a conversation for those who own, manage, or protect intellectual property. Patent oppositions can be a challenging aspect of the patent lifecycle. In this episode, Apple Yard Lees partners, patent attorneys, and experienced opposition specialists, Bobby Smithson and Jennifer Delaney, give their outlook on patent oppositions and appeals at the EPO in 2022. They discuss virtual hearings, how the latest rules of procedure of the Boards of Appeal have been implemented, and recent case law, including the pending referral to the Enlarged Board of Appeal, G221.
1: Thank you, Lucy, for the introduction. So how are you, Bobby?
2: I'm fine, thank you. I've quite a few things to go through. Um, I think the thing that's been sort of surprising probably most for me in the last uh, six months or so has been the impact of... The enlarged board referral on G2 of 21, which, you know, for my understanding was all about plausibility and really to do with the biotech fields, but has been implemented in a way in the chemical fields that I found quite surprising And in, in in one case of mine, leading to a stay of proceedings pending the outcome. And that was in in a case that had nothing to do, certainly with, with biotechnology. I think the whole case really surrounds um, post- filed evidence or post-prepared evidence, post-filed evidence which is submitted during the opposition proceedings. But but indeed, I think the referral is all about just evidence, uh, experimental data that is filed any time after filing. Mm. And of course, when you have an opposition, you are then told what the closest prior art is. And oftentimes, it's not something you knew about before. And when you're presented with a brand new piece of prior art as your closest prior art, then you need to determine the difference and the objective technical problem, etc., which In the chemical fields often will require you to prepare some experimental data to prove that it's not just a mere alternative and you know you don't want to go down that route if you're defending an opposition certainly and likewise if you're if you're the opponent you do want it to be a mere alternative for all of the reasons that we know about so often clients will prepare further experimental data and submit that during the opposition proceedings to prove that there's surprising effects you know or, or some kind of technical effect arising out of the difference between the, uh,
1: the patent uh, or the claims of the patent and the closest prior art. The other thing I thought about is quite often when you're looking to oppose a patent as well, you look at the data and you look to attack the data and to see if something's inventive and to see what support they've got for their inventive step or for the sufficiency of their invention. And quite often during prosecution, applicants would have filed additional data like you say and i mean we do it all the time quite often you'll say to your client oh if you can show an effect of this prior art you it's kind of you will get a patent granted and most of the times that is the case but i've never i have considered this before as a way could we attack it because actually the effect wasn't shown at the priority date the effect only was shown part way through um do you know, the technical effect of what they're relying on and there hasn't really been any law in this regard has there really it sort of seems to be standard practice that it doesn't matter that your data is late previously, that it could be used to support the effect. So I think this is going to be really interesting for opponents as well as for patentees, really.
2: Yeah, I think so. And I think um, if you think about when you're opposing a patent, you want the closest prior art to be the, the document where there is no experimental data to put the other side on the back foot. But what's been surprising for me in, in the cases that I've had, well i've had one go either way actually so in one case we got to the point of okay we need to discuss inventive step you've submitted some data the data is you know relates to the the difference vis-a-vis the closest prior art which we've now determined and in both cases they've said if we find that without the data the patent lacks an inventive step but with the data it does have an inventive step then we will stay the proceedings pending the outcome of g2 of 21 now it seems unusual to me or not unusual but unlikely to me that all post-filed evidence is just going to be washed away or you can't file it or rely on it because otherwise the whole problem solution approach is, Mm -hmm. is called into question but you know i had one case where they said it was a mere alternative without the data they thought it would therefore be a mere alternative, but that in and of itself would be inventive for some sort of mm. reasons, which I thought felt a bit contrived because they thought that this case would probably go away. And so even if they were wrong with the data, which they suspected they would be able to rely on during an appeal, then it would, it would overcome that hurdle. I might be completely incorrect with that, and the, you know, there's possibly some, some merit in, in the fact that it, if it's a mere alternative, it's still inventive. But in the other case, it went the other way where they said, no, you know, we think that without this data, it lacks an inventive step with the data it probably is inventive and therefore we're going to stay the proceedings.
1: It's difficult as well because it relies on the plausibility aspect. And that for a long time seemed to be, from our point of view, like a, let me say, a biotech specific issue due to the way in which these inventions and the rapid growth of the sector in biotechnology and the way people are trying to claim very broad claims. But I, I have had this plausibility issue come into yeah chemical cases more and more recently. I think you want it to be predictable.
2: You just want a predictable, real, realistic, producible application of the law and we need to be able to advise on that because ultimately it's an expensive game to play. And I think that, you know, the clients need certainty going in rather than, oh, there's a question mark over this. And we could, we could argue that, you know, as I say, ultimately we're sort yeah. of spending clients time and resource and certainty is, is much more important.
1: That's quite interesting, actually, Bobby, coming off the g twenty one, but like this idea, two points you raised there that I think are relevant to other aspects. So the certainty that got me thinking about the uh, new rules of procedure of the um, the boards of appeal and how they that's been applied and i thought that part of the new rules and the strictness to some extent of some of the rules would mean we'd get more certainty, but I'm not sure they have been applied necessarily in a consistent way from my experience and chatting to colleagues. And then the other thing, what you've just said about, you know, obviously we're spending clients money and we don't want to be like betting the money on an outcome we're unsure of. I mean, obviously you can never be sure, but you kind of want to have some level of predictability. But I think with the the, the thing with the client's money, again, I was talking with some people from the EPO, the Board, we were at a conference with Board of Appeal members and some of the patent attorneys were raising the same point that because of this strictness in new requests being admitted, people wanting you to put every possible request in, in advance of all proceedings and appeal proceedings, and Having to put your complete case in up front, which is very helpful in some ways to to know what's going on and, and not having any surprises. But some of the level of detail when you're preparing multiple requests with different possible amendments and different possible options. We were trying to point out to the boards of appeal that sometimes that can add quite a lot of cost and complexity into the situation. That is at the end of the day, if you spend another 10 hours sorting something out it's 10 hours you're billing the client for that. Mm. We, they talk a lot about procedural economy. In some cases, the way in which the rules have been applied is actually making it not that efficient. So I think this came about in particular in relation to requests. So um, I'm kind of mixing a few things there. But in relation to auxiliary requests, trying to get some clarity, I think since we've got the new rules of procedure in place, it can be very difficult to get a request in in late but in general the advice from the board seems to be file all your requests very early and we were discussing in a seminar led by the boards of appeal about practical ways of kind of trying to streamline the process for your client so for example you'll have an objection of added matter and objection sufficiency and then different inventive step and novelty attacks and especially if you've got multiple opponents you know you need to respond at the earliest opportunity to all of these attacks. But different attacks require different responses. So you may end up with, you know, a kind of mixture of, you know, 10 plus amendments potentially. And obviously, there's so many different permutations. And, you know, the boards of appeal are saying, well, we don't consider it actually a proper request. If you say, well, actually, I may combine requests one and two or request 13 and 14. Really, you should be putting in all of those requests and that seemed quite contrary to a lot of the gist of things, which is to streamline procedures. So it's very hard, isn't it? I think there are odds because what they're trying to
2: achieve is some kind of certainty. And the way that you do that is put your all your case in, in at the front end. But that that doesn't sort of square with with procedural economy in terms of the economy, like you say, of your clients. But the the reason they've done that is to remove the sort of Pragmatism that some boards were showing and and others weren't. And I I get that. But the problem I've got with it is it hasn't even done that. So, you know, going back to your original point, which was about the new rules of procedure and how they were going to, you know, tighten everything up, I think what they've actually done is given a codified manner in which, if that's what the Board of Appeal wanted to do, they are now allowed to do it. And I've seen some really extreme examples of following the letter. Of you know um the summons was issued, there's no exceptional circumstances, no, you can't remove that you know whatever. you can't do anything. Versus what you just said, which is getting a a request in on the day at appeal. Now, you know, it used to be the case that if it was inconsequential, you know, you can imagine a scenario where you have a a claim set with, you know, 15 claims and uh, claim 13 has got added matter in it, but it's dependent. So you should be able to delete it. It doesn't change the case. I've seen cases where you're not allowed to do that. That's a new request. It's like, but it's the same case. Mm. I'm just literally deleting one claim. doesn't matter. New request. You're not allowed it. Um, Versus... What you're saying, which is actually, you know, sometimes you can get away with it on the day. And to me, if anything, it's just made things a bit less predictable.
1: One of the things we were chatting with, with the Board of Appeal members at a recent conference with other attorneys, was um, why you may be allowed to have an exceptional circumstance after the summons to oral proceedings in the appeal. The occasions where you may be allowed to have a request, um, this is meant to be an exceptional circumstance. And one of the things they said is if the Board issues a preliminary opinion and they raise a new objection. And I think sometimes it's quite clear that something's a new objection, but sometimes it's 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 not so clear that it's a new objection. because. Obviously, especially when you've got multiple opponents, people file lots and lots of arguments. And, you know, as an opponent, you throw everything you can at a case, don't you? And hoping that some things will stick. And sometimes you think something's not a great Mm -hmm. argument, but put it in. You know, you should be putting everything in and all all the objections you can to some extent. So it can be very difficult as a patentee to react to all of these things. But they said in one case, the board had crystallised what the opponents had said. It wasn't the fact that the board had raised a new objection, but they kind of basically put it in a better way and made it more easy for the patentee to understand the objection. But that seemed to be because the board had presented this objection more clearly, it was then legitimate that they were allowed to file, that the patentee could file a new request, even though the kind of basis of the objection had been there all along. So I thought that was that was quite interesting. This kind of I mean, at the end of the day, they still have discretion, don't they, to do what they want. And some of them are very keen to use that discretion.
2: Well, and I think that's it. And I think, you know, it's sort of like they'll know an exceptional circumstance when they see one and they'll take into account the facts, not only of the case, but of the proceedings to to that point. And, you know, I do wonder whether it's another example of giving the tools to people who want to be very strict, but also leaving a latitude to people who sort of want a more pragmatic approach to be pragmatic. You know, I've I've seen diverging case law on that very point sort of one case law that says you know exceptional means exceptional nothing's exceptional here versus the sort of thing that you're saying which is well yeah but we we restated it we crystallized it if that's the word that they've used there and it's like yeah the, the objections already existed but and yeah I, I, as i say i sort of think it's a it's another example of the difference in how this is being applied different before different boards
1: the distinction made quite a lot between um, objections and arguments as well I think that's quite interesting really because sometimes it's quite clear what the difference between an objection and an argument is because obviously a new argument can be filed at any time or submitted at any time whereas a new objection is you know a new allegation of of fact but it can be quite nuanced to think when you're relying on the same prior art but perhaps the adjoining paragraph may be a new objection even though you've kind of Talk generally about the prior art document. If you refer to a new passage, in some cases that's been considered to be a new objection, even though you've kind of talked in a lot of terms about that passage previously. So I think that's quite an interesting one as well. Like some, when you talk about the very strict application, I think some cases um, against opponents, people have been very strict in how people have applied the the raising a new objection rather than a new argument. I, I think that could be quite difficult.
2: So yeah, one thing I've I've seen which is slightly different coming through recently, the patentee disapproving the the text for grant and re- withdrawing all their requests to avoid getting a full written decision from the board of appeal. So obviously, you know, you file all your requests and you 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 get, you have the, as the boards of appeal do now, they go through it all and they give you their opinion. And before they announce their decision, they ask you if you maintain your requests. And as the, uh, as the opponent, obviously you say, yeah, of course, yeah, we want the patent revoked. Um, But as the patentee, then, you know, there's the opportunity to withdraw your requests. And the problem with that is, uh, well, the problem if you're an opponent is you don't get a reasoned decision as to why the patent's been revoked. It's quite frustrating if, you know, especially if you've got sort of a family of patents, say, and, you know, there's divisionals with similar issues, maybe you can always infer the reasons from the preliminary opinion, perhaps in combination with the minutes, which just sort of say, yes, it was found to lack sufficiency or for, you know, found to add matter but they just don't go into why and especially you know you can imagine if that's a a turnaround from or if you've managed to overturn the preliminary opinion to get to that position that would be really quite frustrating because you've got no no written evidence as to why the board of appeal came to that conclusion and then there's no written decision either so you know that that that's something that's been happening quite a bit and as i say I've, i've actually seen it offered now to the to the patentee as a as a are you sure you want to keep it so um frustrating if you're the if you're the opponent but possibly uh, an interesting thing to do if you're the patentee
1: i mean it puts the opponent at a disadvantage you haven't got these reasons have you i think you know with the estoppel situation mm. in the us as well um I think people maybe don't want the reasons arguments um, to affect their US case, but it's kind of good, isn't it, as an opponent to have a, a you know a negative opinion or a negative decision, really, isn't it? And I think if people have got divisionals as well, they don't want that on the public record. So the EPO are interested in this. There's, you get 25% reimbursement of your appeal fee back if you withdraw the appeal before the decision is announced. So I don't know if that is it withdrawing the appeal or not. So I think that that's potentially, but I don't think anybody would do that by the time you've got to oral proceedings and you're talking you've spent all that much money. But the I um I thought it was an interesting point that the EPO kind of I think that might be why they're kind of another reason why the EPO are asking this.
2: It gives them a lot less work and I can understand entirely, you know, sort of sitting through the hearing and giving the opinion in the decision is one thing, but then having to go and actually write a full reasoned decision is quite onerous. And I do understand that. And they're trying to, you know, get through their caseload. The the, the opposition division, of course, is is getting pretty quick at uh, getting through these oppositions again at first instance, but the boards of appeal seems to be getting longer and longer. So if, if they can do anything to try and speed up efficiency than I understand it. One of the things that you just mentioned about estoppel and and it made me think about the proposed changes with regards to the UPC and the potential for central revocation. Now, there's not going to be any estoppel. Is how I understand it. However, as I'm sure you know, lots of European national courts give a, a patent that's come through opposition and appeal, for example, yeah. a very high presumption of validity. I mean, it wouldn't actually be the case here because the patent's been revoked. So uh, there's nothing to uh, there's nothing to to sort of argue about before the Unified Patent Court. But it, just that talk of estoppel made me think that I think estoppel. Although there is no such thing in, in the eyes of the UPC, I think that it's something that we might need to be a little bit more aware of um, in, in future years.
1: Quite often you have divisionals, don't you, on commercially important cases. You know, if you, if you have a case for a client and, you know, it's commercially important and they think it's going to be opposed and they, they know it's likely to be opposed from past experience in that field, they'll often file a divisional. I've got a case recently where we've filed a divisional as soon as it goes to grant to keep it going to keep our options open through opposition and I do wonder if you had a negative decision on your parent application you know what's the impact on your divisional and your divisional may still go through because it's different claims and may even survive opposition but then you've still got that negative decision you probably don't want it anywhere do you?
2: No I totally agree I mean you don't you don't want the negative decision for all kinds of reasons and and yeah I mean in that scenario where like when you've like say you've got a divisional it's, it's, a, it's entirely understandable why you wouldn't want the, the full written reasons as to why the parent is, uh, you know, invalid, basically. So I, I completely understand it. One thing, I was talking to a colleague about this, and one thing that they, they mentioned was obviously you need to... <laughs> You need to talk to your client beforehand to understand that this might be one of the outcomes, you know, if you're, if you're representing the patentee, because you need this sort of express permission to effectively be able to withdraw that patent before you get to the end and think, oh, I'm going to get a negative decision here, but I haven't got, you know, I haven't been expressly given permission to withdraw the patent. Yeah, there's, there's a few things to think about in that scenario, but I think most of us who have seen it are kind of getting a bit wily to those things and making sure that you've got that uh, expressly in place.
1: It's a bit like asking for a stay as well, isn't it? If you think, um, going back to like evidence or somebody wanting to talk or somebody putting late file documents Mm. in, you know, kind of, you always say to the client, well, I don't think they should get this data when it's really late, but do you want me to ask for a stay if they get it in? Or so we can carry out some experiments in reply because I think, yeah. I mean, they weren't always, grant tech, but you don't want to ask for something when the client's like, no, I just want a decision. I want to get this over with. I want to know where I stand commercially. But you, d- you don't know. So I, I kind of think yeah, there's things that can yeah. come up in oral proceedings and having a good think beforehand about, you know, it, is the best commercial outcome for your client getting a decision on the day or prolonging the proceedings as much as you can. Things like remittal as well. I mean, sometimes you don't have a choice on remittal, but sometimes you might get asked about it. I had a case where they they decided on I did matter. And it wasn't in the favour of the patentee, but then they were like, "Would well, you want to sort, discuss novelty and inventive step while we're here anyway for the opposition division? So you have to kind of ask the client that situation. Do they want to drag it out or do they want to get a, get a decision there and then um, on all issues for appeal? Mm-hmm. So I think I think there's the kind of a lot of things to consider before you go into all proceedings. I mean, obviously, it depends if you've got the client with you. In some cases, you will have the client there in the room with you or following the proceedings. That makes a, a big impact, actually, on your freedom to operate on the day
2: that's been quite a lot easier in the last two years hasn't it uh, you know the, or the attendance by your client has been more likely in my experience in the last two years because they don't have to go anywhere you know that that's it looks likely or seems like it's about to change um people are starting to have much many more uh in-person appeal hearings the first instance have pushed out the uh pilot program to at least the 31st of december this year so all first instance hearings will be will be by video until the, at least the end of the year, and I can see that being extended again. They seem quite keen.
1: That's what I really miss about the um, the in person proceedings because you can you can look everyone in the eye and you can make sure that they're all on the page you're telling them to be on, and you just yeah. can't do that. You kind of you know you don't even know if they're looking at you, do you? Really, <laughs> <laughs> because they, they can be looking at the screen of the camera, but are oh, they looking at you? Are they are they are you really engaged them in the way that you know you mm. you, you you know it's it's hard with any you know, video video thing, isn't it, really? We've all had lots of experience of lots of video calls and just working out who's, how people are engaged is it's a lot more difficult. I'm conscious that we
2: sort of started at the beginning saying it's been a year or so since we did one of these. And I'm sort of thinking, I wonder what we'll be talking about in a year. And I guess it'll be, we've all been back to Munich uh, a lot and then we'll we'll sort of have that definite compare and contrast because we did it like it was before we've had this been shown this whole new world and we've been exposed to the old world again and and I suspect we won't come out with a with a good answer uh, as to which is better it'll be a kind of well this is better for that and that's better for that you can't have both case by case basis isn't
1: it yeah yeah I suspect that's probably right because sometimes it's it's an easy argument sometimes the the prior art you know is clear isn't it and sometimes you, you're very nuanced and the technology is really complex and yeah i think and obviously the board and the people it's all about the people isn't it really and you get different people in the room on different days and it, yeah it's difficult it's not a one-size-fits-all is it? it never is i'm afraid
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the green shoots podcast by apple yard lees if you have a question or topic suggestion, please email us at ip at or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at, at appleyardlees.